Well, I can hardly start a sermon on prayer without praying first, so if you would bow with me again, I'll go to the Lord for his help. Kind Father, we are totally dependent on you for all things, and as we break open your word this morning, I pray it would bear fruit in our lives, that your spirit would move among us, that your word would be alive to us, and that Christ would be great in our minds and in our hearts this morning, because we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing a series um, in the Gospel of Luke uh, in preparation for Holy Week and Easter. Uh, We're using each week to kind of narrow our focus a little bit more each week uh, to focus ourselves for this season of the year. Two weeks ago, we studied testing from Luke 4, uh, considering how testing reveals the faithfulness of God. Last week, we had the chance to study self-denial. Um, essential to following Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. This week, we continue our study in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, where Christ teaches his disciples an essential trait fundamental to being a disciple of Christ, and that is this, prayer. So if you would, please turn there with me, Luke chapter 11, for our study this morning, because again, uh, we are following after Christ as his disciples, and in these weeks as we prepare for Easter, we're we're studying spiritual disciplines modeled by Christ himself, empowered by the Holy Spirit, glorifying God alone. So read the text with, with me this morning, Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Titled the sermon this morning, Following Christ in Prayer, because again, we're studying several attributes of Christ in preparation, preparing our hearts and minds for Easter uh, coming in a few weeks. And the big idea this morning, what I want us to to chase down throughout the text is this. The true disciple's prayer expresses perseverant dependence on God alone. 
The true disciple's prayer expresses perseverant dependence on God alone. From the passage this morning, there are two unique facets to following Christ in our prayer lives uh, that Jesus teaches us this morning. The true disciple prays with a particular posture, a posture of dependence. That's the first point. So first we see the true disciple prays out of absolute dependence on God's sovereign hand. We see this in verses 2 through 4. This section in the Gospel of Luke with its parallel passage in Matthew is often titled the Lord's Prayer, since it's Jesus' teaching on the subject. But in reality, this is actually the disciples' prayer, if you think about it. In fact, verse 1 tells us that Jesus' disciples wanted a prayer that a true follower of Jesus would recite. Just as John the Baptist's followers learned distinct prayers, distinct of their community, uh, signifying loyalty to John the Baptist, his life and his teaching, so Jesus' disciples wanted this same kind of teaching. They wanted to know how a true follower of Christ ought to pray. In this way, Christ provides an exemplary prayer for the true disciple to express their common need and their unified dependence as a community of disciples in God alone an individual and corporate spirit of dependence on God's sovereign hand. This prayer as a whole reflects the Christian's total reliance on God and his providential care. God's control of history, your kingdom come, in verse 2. His provision of basic needs or spiritual protection, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. All this reflects our absolute dependence on God and reveals a dependence as the absolute necessity for the Christian life. Prayer bonds the true believer believer to God, recognizing that the affairs of life are often a matter in which we either attempt to walk alone, separate from God, or we walk in humble dependence, fully recognizing that all things come from his hand. The disciples' prayer acknowledges that our trust needs to be in him. Without taking anything for granted, a true disciple prays humbly and in utter reliance on the sovereign hand of the Heavenly Father. In verse 2, Jesus begins his instruction on prayer with the term of intimacy, relationship, and endearment. Father, he says, Father. The original word here is often described when you you hear someone explain it uh, as the Jewish equivalent of daddy. And this certainly tugs at my emotions. I'm sure it does you. Uh, But it really isn't the fullest way to really appreciate the idea. Yes, the term's familial, so it's a family term. Yes, the term is intimate. But there is also a very deep sense of respect, recognizing the authority that rests in this figure being addressed. Also, because consider how Jesus moves on from Father to hallowed be your name. It's a quite natural transition. Maybe if we understood it as Daddy, it would be kind of an awkward transition to, to speak of holiness, and, and, and God's otherness. Uh, these ideas highlight the emphasis of God's holiness, his supreme authority, which follow this intimate introduction. Here then, Jesus calls his disciples to childlike trust, not to childish emotion. So what's the difference? Childlike trust, childish emotion. Well, real intimacy is founded on trusting God, not simply on feelings or circumstantial comfort. What God can do for me, as it were. It's a plain way of saying that. But intimacy that grows out of a substantive grounding in the fundamental nature of every believer's relationship to God. A grounding in the gospel, frankly, that enables the believer to turn to God for protection and care 
when everything around us demands us to, to doubt and question God's goodness. God rules, yes, from the highest heaven, but he is approachable. We can go to him with every need, and his sovereign hand will grant what is best. This is why Jesus first calls attention to daily bread in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. He uses an imperative not to encourage a kind of demanding or assumptive spirit on our part, but to encourage confidence, uh, to foster a desire that God will lovingly listen and respond to his children with even the smallest of concerns. This statement should encourage expectation and recognition that God is our sole provider, sole provider down to the food that sustains each one of us each day. The true disciple acknowledges God's care at this very fundamental and very basic level. Our daily needs are provided by him. Yet these daily needs extend far beyond what we would, typical physical needs, our daily bread. So Jesus rightly brings to bear the ongoing daily spiritual needs of the believer as well in verse 4. When he says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. When moving on to forgiveness in verse 4, Jesus connects our dependence to God directly to forgiveness. Forgiveness received from God and a forgiveness we freely offer to others. The disciple seeks forgiveness of sin and does so recognizing that he or she must give in return what's been given to them. Frankly, we are to model what we ask for. Notice that the issue referenced by Jesus here in verse 4 is directed at his disciples his children, those who are already part of God's family. So the appeal here is not for a kind of entrance into God's family. It's not an appeal to salvation. But it's the regular cleansing from sin that you and I both know we need on a daily basis, right? Recall the intimate language of verse 2. Father, the scene here is a family, a son or daughter confessing sin, not to become part of the family, but as a kind of indicator, a proof of the adoption that's already taken place and to avoid anything that might cause shame to the name of that father. You know, I think of 1 John 4, 19, which simply states this, we love God because he first loved us. It's the same principle. We forgive because we have first been forgiven. We must constantly connect the health of our horizontal relationships to the vitality of our vertical relationships. Not only forgiveness, but Jesus also references another troubling truth of our existence, and that's testing. The reference to temptation, as my translation rendered it here, or testing in verse 4, it calls my attention immediately to our study two weeks ago, to the temptations of Christ, the testing of Christ in the wilderness in Luke 4, and reveals to us that those who journey through life with Christ, his true disciples, can expect opposition, yet... This is a wonderful reminder that God will be faithful to us. Jesus advises his disciples here to ask God for the favor of being excused from testing. Why? Is he endorsing our aversion to testing and to difficulty, to hard times? Is he saying that's okay to ask for? Not not in particular. It's more this. Jesus isn't raising questions regarding God's faithfulness or God's ability to carry us through testing or even affirming our aversion to testing. No, Jesus reminds us that the true disciple must recognize and acknowledge 
their lack, total lack of autonomous or kind of self-generated heroic faith and their pressing need for God's divine care in intense and difficult circumstances. Testing is guaranteed and only God's sovereign hand will carry us along. He bears us up. Instead of isolating or driving us away, the relational knowledge of God, his fatherhood, and holy reverence for him enhances our understanding of him and enhances our prayer. And this access is declared to us from the very lips of his son, the source of our access, the source of our life. God's children need not fear approaching their father. Yet Jesus also points out here how intimacy with God deepens, our relational knowledge grows, and we still rightly understand, though, how separate God is from us. It's this tension, right? God is approachable, but yet unapproachable. God is unique, set apart in character, yet we are utterly dependent on him in every area of our lives. We can come humbly before him to the one unequaled and unrivaled in the entire universe, and he will respond to us. The one sovereign and mighty God will care for us. Essentially, life will be lived more effectively and prayer more enlivening when we approach God, understanding the, the way history is controlled, where history is headed. In the context of eternity, our temporal requests, uh, material and spiritual requests, will make a lot more sense. We're able to break free from the constant demands of our immediate and pressing needs as we begin to recognize how, how fully dependent we actually are. And at the same time, we recognize how truly great God is. We realize how desperately we need him, and we realize how loving and kind he is. So then it raises some questions. What do you know about God? How intimately do you walk with him? Recall our study in Philippians that knowing God is a much richer and deeper and and substantive truth than merely just rational facts, ideas that we learn in school or we kind of obtain from the people around us or our parents do it so it's okay for us or a spouse does it and it's okay for us. Philippians 3.10. Do you remember remember this appeal from our previous study, Philippians 3.10? I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Frankly, prayer reveals how well you know God. What do your prayers reveal about you? Are you so dependent on the forgiveness given you in the gospel that you readily and willingly forgive others? That's another aspect of what we've studied so far, forgiveness. Do you truly believe you desperately need God's forgiveness today, right now? This is, I think, a kind of dependence that believers, I know I often misunderstand this, I think it usually break down, breaks down to kind of two poles. We either underestimate or overestimate, uh, misunderstand the nature of our salvation in this way. We either spurn the righteous demands of God over our life from day to day, falsely believing we have grown somehow beyond the gospel's demands in our daily lives. He saved us, so we're okay. We don't have to do anything more than that. Or we limit the work of Christ in that we surely don't believe that God 
intimately loves us and cares for us. I mean, he already gave us Christ. Surely he doesn't want to give me anything else. I, I mean, I already got that from him, and that was, I'm sure, hard to get from him. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't want to really take care of me. I'm afraid of him. In truth, the character of the gospel must become the source of our disposition and desires because Christ provides a way to kind of level those extremes out when we truly understand his work on our behalf. We don't autonomously provide forgiveness, disregarding consequences, um, but we are avenues and vessels of God's grace because the grace has been given to us and we are dependent on it on a daily basis. I mean, how painful is it when a friend a loved one, a family member, a spouse, a child, denies you forgiveness, denies me forgiveness. How painful is that? Are you that kind of person that you deny forgiveness? Forgiveness wasn't denied to you in an ultimate sense. That is haunting and completely contradictory to the nature of the gospel. It is destructive to the testimony of Christ. Does Ephesians 4.32 characterize your relationships? Be kind to each other. Be gentle with each other. Tender-hearted. Forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. We need spiritual renewal daily. We need forgiveness daily. We are infinitely dependent on the sovereign hand of God over our spiritual well-being. So how deeply dependent are you on God Do you really see God as the supplier for your every need, every day, all the time? Your spiritual protection? Your prayers will reveal the truth of this, the answer to this question. You can be sure of it. How we pray exposes how we live, and how we live exposes what we truly love. Following Christ's example in prayer exposes a very important truth for the true disciple, namely... The true disciple prays out of absolute dependence on God's sovereign hand. God cares for our smallest needs. He watches over our souls, and he is the source of our life, health, and peace. Not only this, but Jesus points out another wonderful truth for us, and it's this. The true disciple perseveres in prayer, mindful of God's loving kindness. The true disciple perseveres in prayer, mindful of God's loving kindness. And we see this in the illustrations that Jesus gives us in verses 5 through 13. The prayer Jesus taught his disciples in verses uh, uh, 2 through 4 is followed by a parable in verses 5 through 8, where he encourages his disciples to persevere in the practice of prayer. Uh, To fully understand this parable, we need to appreciate three particular aspects of first century life that build tension into the story that maybe might be slightly lost on us. First, Food was not readily available. Uh, Typically, when you baked bread or made food, it was for that day only. Uh, So this kind of call that the neighbor's making in the middle of the night, uh, not good. Second, the culture held that hospitality and held it in very high regard. It was a duty even. Uh, uh, There was a a question of honor. Um, So when when a neighbor comes and asks for help, there's an obligation for you to help and to be a, a hospitable and helping neighbor. Third, most ancient homes had only one room. So that means everyone was sleeping in one room. A very late evening guest, no food, and waking up the entire family. The passage references children. So do you see the dilemma building in this parable? I know I, know I do. <laughs> 
someone wakes up my kids in the middle of the night, I don't think I'm going to be too happy. Uh, I'm grumpy when I'm hungry. I'm likely going to be hungry in the middle of the night. And I value my privacy. So that's three strikes against me. So again, do you see the tension that's building here, this kind of scenario that Jesus is, is playing out for the disciples? When Jesus gives this parable, he is not necessarily calling out, uh, there's not like a one-for-one comparison, God's the, the grumpy neighbor um, who's not really going to help you. You just have to kind of knock down the doors of heaven to God, get God to help you. What, what's happening is um, the neighbor's unwillingness to assist is contrasted against God's great desire and loving desire to help his children. God intends our prayers to be intentional, courageous, and persistent. If even a human friend, because Jesus goes on to say this, if even a human friend will respond to a persistent request that that really goes against everything that is happening in their life, it's inconvenient, it's, it's awkward, it wakes his kids up at night, how much more will God respond to us? God won't delay and he won't spurn our needs. So Jesus uses this parable in verses 6 through 8 to set up this teaching in verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, he says in verse 9. He sets the stage with an astounding revelation about the nature of God, the, the, about God and prayer uh, in our lives in verses 9 and 10. Because of all I've set up to point, Jesus says uh, in, in verse 9, so I say to you, because of what I've, this parable I've given you, I can promise you this. Ask, seek, knock, because God stands ready to hear your passionate pleas. Children who understand the nature of their dependence on God. They understand God is high and lifted up, but yet they also understand he is the provider of their physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. These children, these true disciples, go to him, the source of all life, health, and joy, and they won't be denied. Ask. It's a common word used throughout the New Testament when describing prayer. Consider Mark 11, verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Ephesians 3, 20. I love this one. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And then, I cannot tell you how many times I've prayed this, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God. Seek uh, also conveys an idea of earnestly pursuing God. And the thought here is, is molded in, in many ways by the Old Testament language of seeking after God and finding him. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near. Or Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Knock. Consistent with the previous parable in verses 6 through 8. So he continues this idea of knocking on a neighbor's door. The image of knocking communicates an assertiveness in our prayers in light of God's promise for charity and loving kindness. What is also remarkable here in these verses is there's a kind of universality to this appeal. Everyone, everyone is encouraged to recognize God's faithfulness and expansive goodness. Responding in confidence. Responding in confidence and pursuing intimacy with God in prayer. Again, we've already seen the character 
of the true disciple's prayer and that they are dependent on God for all things. We need God, not the other way around. So this appeal to urgently and persistently or shamelessly, as my translation puts it, to shamelessly pursue God is founded on an absolute understanding that our small stature in comparison to God's grandeur does not limit our ability to access him through the love of Christ. He is still our father and his loving kindness is reliable. Jesus closes this section with a parable uh, of the interaction or kind of a teaching, it's not really a parable, of the interaction between a father and a child in verses 11 through 13. There's a tripling of this lesson um, on God's disposition toward his children when they pray to him, kind of as a, a reassertion again and again. Jesus maintains that God, whose goodness far exceeds even the best human parents, who would never answer their children's requests with malice. So these contrasting terms he uses, uh, a fish for a snake, egg, scorpion. His loving kindness knows no boundaries. And how does Jesus support this? The superiority of the fatherhood of God is most evident in the superiority of his gift. Jesus' instructions do not give us a spiritual blank check then. Um, Rather, there is a change in our disposition in prayer as as our desires grow to match the plan of God. That is, God's liberality extends to identifying and providing for genuine needs, not triviality or kind of uh, everyday needs. Need often unrecognized and even uh, unprayed for by us, God provides for it. Human parents give good gifts, but God gives the best gift, his Holy Spirit. To those who pray confident in God alone, even if their prayer included no request really for the Spirit, God grants it anyway. Because the fatherhood of God is most evident and his loving kindness most clear in giving us his Spirit. Our task then as a community of true disciples is to persistently pursue God in prayer. Why? Because of his loving kindness toward us. So, are you persistent in prayer? What things in life, desires, habits, hobbies, relationships, do you persistently and fervently pursue? I guarantee there are things you want and you go after them. Is prayer one of them? We have to be very careful in our understanding of this practice of prayer because it's not really our independent efforts that kind of provoke a response from God. Our efforts are not the point here. It's God's willingness to give to us. God's willingness to listen to our humble, persistent, needy cries. You know, my wife... uh, is a very sound sleeper and uh, more often resembles a dead person than a living one when she's asleep. Uh, I love you, sweetie. I mean, uh, no amount of tossing or turning from me, caffeine, uh, light, noises, snacks, I mean, you, you name it. Nothing will deter her desire for sleep, which is kind of awesome. Um, nevertheless, there's a pretty amazing change that goes on in my house when a baby's born. Um, there's something beautiful and miraculous that occurs, not simply because I get more sleep, um, but Rachel is acutely aware of every noise that that baby makes. And I think every mom could kind of identify with this, right? Uh, 
she is aware of every, every noise, the slightest indication of need or pain or discomfort, even to a, a very kind of troubling sense where everything, you know, there's kind of a hypersensitivity. But ultimately, she's just ready to give of herself to the needs of that child. And it isn't as if the newborn provides some kind of reasonable case, um, clear idea for what their needs need to be. I know, I mean, crying and screaming is a pretty clear indication of need, but you have to kind of discern what the needs actually are, right? I mean, you can't just kind of throw diapers in the room or anything like that. Um, You know, they don't use precise relational language or they don't have the right words, yet my wife and just about every other imperfect parent seeks the welfare of their children. And this, this is but a small, incomplete image of how God hears our prayers and is moved. It's not our prayers that are convincing. It's not our ability to move him or convince him of our needs. It is only through the loving kindness of God, a special relationship wrought in his children through the work of Christ condescending to our desperate and total need for him. And in this, for his glory, he helps us. He helps us. Do you believe God loves you and wants to provide for your needs in this way? I know this is a a really big struggle for me. Um, I often imagine God as some kind of cosmic grump who I have to kind of cajole or coerce convinced in my behavior or the right words or uh, to work on my behalf. And that's, and you know, that's just not, that's just not it. Jesus reveals the heart of the father toward his children. If a sinful, wicked, as Jesus puts it here, human parent is able to provide for the life and well-being of a child, imagine how much greater the watch care of our holy and loving and faithful God is. He won't deceive us. It's another important lesson here. He won't deceive us with something that kind of looks the same. He doesn't do the bait and switch, as it were. He doesn't give us what's harmful and deadly, a snake, a scorpion. He gives us life, most evidenced by his one unique son, Jesus Christ. And as an argument from kind of the lesser to the greater here, Jesus declares to his disciples, to us, God is love persevere in prayer. You know, we've been studying several important themes in preparation for Easter and Holy Week, several critical ideas that assist us in kind of walking, following after Christ, in particular ways embodying truths of the gospel, spiritual disciplines. We spent time in Luke 11 this morning reviewing Christ's teaching on prayer. We've talked about dependence and perseverance, We've learned how loving and gracious and faithful God is in our prayers. So I suppose it comes down to this on our, on our behalf. Do you pray to God like your existence, your entire existence depends upon it? The true disciple's prayer expresses perseverant dependence on God alone because the true disciple prays out of absolute dependence on God's sovereign hand. The true disciple perseveres in prayer, mindful of God's loving kindness. As Christ exemplified throughout his entire ministry, we can depend on God at all times, even to the point of death. We continue to persevere in prayer because we serve a faithful and kind God who hears our prayers. He listens.
Take comfort at this and follow Christ in prayer. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that you have taught us how to approach you in prayer. And in that, we learn dependence, we learn perseverance, but we learn about you, God, that you're faithful, you're sovereign in control of all things. We can rely on you. You won't lie to us, deceive us, mislead us, but you are kind and good. May our prayers reflect that, a deep belief and trust in the gospel and a deep trust in you. Grant us these things because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.